Well, it's been a long time. Where you guys been? Where have I been? That's right. Yeah, most of you are aware that for the past few weeks, uh, I've been in the future hanging upside down on the bottom of the earth. <laughs> I was in Sydney and Melbourne, Australia. Um, I've never been on the other side of the international dateline before. And let me tell you something, that time change is no joke. 17 hours. We had Super Bowl Monday. The Super Bowl for us was Monday morning at 10 a.m. Um, so I, I am still off. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not quite right yet. Um, I was there. It was the last of uh, my three doctoral residencies. I'm really excited. I come back with my thesis project and title approved. So now I can begin the work, get the writing done. Should be done this time next year, uh, defending. That's the hope. The students asked me before I left, they said, uh, so this time next year when you're all finished, do we have to call you Dr. Chad or Dr. Herb? And I said, of course not. That sounds ridiculous. You can just call me His Holiness, the Right Reverend Dr. Chad Herb. (laughs) That joke's gonna get old fast. (laughs) Just kidding, of course. Uh, But I did have an amazing experience. I'm really excited um, about the work that I'm doing. I'm really grateful because the work I'm doing for that program is set in the context of the ministries here at First Pres. Um, So the program's not only gonna benefit me and my ability to serve the church more effectively, but it's gonna benefit our purpose and mission and our strategy over the next coming years uh, to grow together. Uh, While I was there, I did not see four animals that could kill me. That was my goal, was to see four animals in the wild that could kill me. I did not, but I did get to see kangaroos and koalas. And um, the kangaroos, actually, I was close enough to those two guys that they could have knocked me out if they wanted to. Um, The koala wasn't moving. (laughs) So um, did y'all know what they call koalas in Australia? It's kind of like an urban legend. They call them drop bears. (laughs) So it's like they scare kids, telling them these bears drop out of the sky. Anyway, I had a great time. I'm grateful to have had the chance to go. Uh, So last week, Roland began uh, our journey through the season of Lent, and he began by reading to you this passage from Luke chapter 9, verse 51. As the time approached for Jesus to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Elie Wiesel was a Holocaust survivor, um, a Nobel Prize winner, and uh, he said, I think at his Nobel Prize acceptance speech, he said that hope is a memory of the future. Jesus remembered that it was the cross that was waiting for him. He knew exactly what was waiting for him. He resolutely turned his face toward the city where he would take upon himself the sins of the world Even as he described to his disciples the suffering that he was going to endure, Jesus had a memory of the future, hope. Even as he hung suffering on that cross, he did so, as we're gonna read from Hebrews 12 in a few minutes, he did so because there was joy set before him. How do you approach the cross with hope? And how do you endure its suffering with joy? And I wonder if it's possible for us to do two things at once, to carry our cross, to walk through this Lenten season, this season of suffering, to walk through the difficulties of this world, but to do it with hope and with joy. 
I wonder if we can experience a memory of the future that can help us navigate the difficulties of this broken world. So today, as a friend said yesterday, we're gonna pray on both sides of the cross. (laughs) We're gonna remember together the cost and the joy of the cross that stood before Jesus and the cross that stands before everyone who answers his call to be his disciple. But to do that, I wanna go back, I wanna read a passage that came before the one that Roland shared with you last week. This too comes from Luke chapter nine. Uh, We're gonna start in verse 18. And this will be a passage that is likely very familiar to many of you. But I wanna invite you to try to listen to it as if you're hearing it for the first time because familiarity truly does breed unfamiliarity. And when we hear these familiar things over and over, sometimes they lose their power and potentially their meaning. So listen to this from Luke chapter nine. I'm gonna start in verse 18. Luke writes that one day Jesus left the crowds to pray alone. Only his disciples were with him and he asked them, who do people say I am? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say you're one of the other ancient prophets risen from the dead. Then he asked him, but who do you say I am? And Peter replied, you're the Messiah sent from God. So Jesus warned his disciples not to tell anyone who he was. The son of man must suffer many terrible things, he said. He will be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He will be killed, but on the third day, he will be raised from the dead. And then he said to the crowd, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross daily and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world, but are yourself lost and destroyed? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, grateful again as always that you gather your people, your family, you gather your church together in this place so that we can remember celebrate who you are and what you've done. We're grateful that you gather with us here and we are grateful that when we leave this place today that you go with us. That we carry you out into the world. And so as we prepare to do that today, we pray that we would remember that our witness in the world is verbal but it's also visible. So we pray this day you would show us what that witness looks like, that you would guide us along the way. So open our mind, our eyes, our ears, and our hearts as we receive the good news. Pray that it would become a part of who we are and that it would naturally flow from us into the world as we live and move each day. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. So I read that to you from the NLT, the New Living Translation. It said this again, it said, if any of you, verse 23, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross daily and follow me. And that word follow me, we've talked about this before. It's a present active verb in the Greek, which means that it's a verb that continues on. It's a verb that doesn't have an end. So give up your way, take up your cross daily Follow me and keep on following. Continual action. And the NIV is a little more familiar. 
NIV says it this way, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. So like I said, these are really familiar words to many of us in the room, but I'm not sure that they're easily understood. I think it's actually really hard for us to understand this, especially in our time and especially in our culture. I wanna read to you what one commentator had to say about this, about this call to bear our own cross. And he's specifically speaking about our culture today. He says this, he says, cross-bearing rarely happens today because discipleship doesn't come with the automatic sense of cost that it carried back then. A decision for Jesus does not bring automatic rejection today. If anything, we may suffer the opposite. It's possible that we can operate in such closed Christian circles that we can lack contact with the outside world and miss the rejection of the world that this passage assumes will be present. But such a protected kind of discipleship is not what Jesus asks of his followers. Jesus assumes that those who are his will represent him in the world. And when they do, he knows exactly how the world will react. And he's talking about the danger of a discipleship that is set only in the context of the church or only in the context of the home. It's a safer discipleship. It's often free from persecution. It's free from ridicule. But it's not very effective in the mission that we've been given to take the good news to the ends of the earth, to be disciples who make more disciples, even in places and with people who may reject us. But there's another danger because there are some who think that they are disciples of Jesus. They think they're following faithfully. They are active out in the world, but they're not experiencing any cross-bearing either. They're not experiencing ridicule or persecution. Well, the author has something to say about that as well. He says a walk of faithfulness and humble service will stand out as different from the self-seeking and self-centered world around us it will even stand as a threat to that worldview. If we are too comfortable in the world, and if no one can tell that our lives are any different, it might be because we have not taken that full journey of discipleship that Jesus calls us to take. Jesus has asked me to deny myself, to bear my cross. That simply means setting aside my agenda getting on board with God's plan, the plan that he has laid out for all creation and getting on board with a part that he has called me to play within it. And that's hard in this world, in a world that preaches self-actualization and self-fulfillment, right? Follow your dreams, you can do whatever you wanna do. You know what I wanted to do when I was a kid? I wanted to play basketball. <laughs> Come on, <laughs> We all have certain gifts. (laughs) We live in a world that honestly what it's doing, it's encouraging bent people to just turn further inward upon themselves. Jesus is calling us to a life of service that concerns itself with the needs of others first. He is inviting us to a life of self-denial. in a a world that encourages us to look out for number one, to build our own kingdoms, to accumulate and accumulate, Jesus invites us to stop, turn around, 
Put him and his kingdom first. Put others and their needs next. And the paradox of it all is that when we trust him, when we trust him and when we obey, when we put him first, when we put others next, that's when we find the kind of real life that we were created to live. And it's a life that's better than anything we could even imagine. But listen, this is not easy. And Jesus understands it's not easy. He faced this temptation himself. In the beginning of Luke's gospel in Luke 4, he writes this, the devil led Jesus up to a high place, showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to them, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, worship me, and it will all be yours. Jesus faced this temptation to walk the path leading to real life that God has laid out before him or to accept the counterfeit life that this world is offering instead. But Jesus knew something. He knew that even if he gained this whole world, this this world is still broken. And ultimately a broken world breaks the soul. It's a bad investment. And he wants his disciples to understand this too. During my time in Australia, during the residency, the whole program has been amazing. It's been about looking at the future of all the industries that you and others actually work in. It's teaching pastors how to understand the world that our people live in and work in so that we can better serve you. So we talked about the future of business, the future of law, the future of finance and governance. And in Australia, one of the things that we talked about was the future of technology and the future of artificial intelligence in particular. We've had the opportunity to meet with just incredible people. We met one of the men who actually invented the internet. (laughs) Like he was part of the team that created the protocol, the IP network that you type in, www. He and they created that so that you can access the internet today. And he talked about the fact that when they were building it, they had no idea what they were unleashing into the world. They had no idea how it would be used. We met with the founder of an artificial intelligence startup company who admits, like so many of them do, they have no idea where this is going. They have no idea what it's capable of. So we talked about the need for ethicists and theologians to be involved in the process so that we can be more thoughtful about the future that we're trying to create for our world. But an interesting thing that came up throughout these conversations was the number of billionaires so people that these, that these men knew, the number of billionaires who were funding and starting technology and artificial intelligence companies around the world, the number of them who were starting and funding these companies with an inward-looking hope that technology and artificial intelligence might finally solve the problem of death. They told the story of one billionaire in particular His company's sole mandate and mission is to ensure that he lives forever. (laughs) That's what his entire team has been tasked to do. Y'all, Jesus offers that assurance for free. (laughs) We just so quickly think that we can find an easier way to get there on our own. And the tragedy is that even, even if you gain the whole world, It's still a broken world. It ultimately breaks the soul, which causes the broken world to break even further. 
an endless cycle, the curse, the true curse, would be to stuck, be stuck in a broken world filled with cancer and war and poverty and hunger and injustice forever. It's a bad investment. Jesus is trying to save us from losing everything in that market. Everything has a cost. The world is asking us to pay a price for a product that it can never deliver. It's a false hope. A false memory of a future that the world can't provide. And y'all, we know this is true. Like when you watch ads online or on TV, right? What are the drug companies doing? Promising to keep you safe from illness. They're gonna make you healthier. They're gonna make you thinner. Just don't worry about that long list of side effects that comes at the end. What, what are fashion and product ads doing? Promising to make you more attractive. That'll make you more noticeable. That way you'll be more easily accepted. You'll be more loved by others. Influencers, they go online and they're telling our kids, they're pretending that they have their lives all together. And they're telling our kids, you can be like me if you just indulge and follow your instincts, follow your passions and desires, go out and live your best life. I was trying to find a commercial to show you just to make the point, but I didn't wanna you know, promote somebody's product. <laughs> And then this morning, uh, Richard Briggs sent me this email. He sent me this clip from a Calvin and Hobbes, and I know you can't see the words. Um, in, in one of the squares, uh, he's getting mail, right? He's gone out and collected the mail. He comes back in and he says, hey, we got this. It's a You're Not Attractive Enough women's magazine. And it has an article on swimsuits that'll minimize all your body flaws. Or here's something else. Uh, you're not stylish or ostentatious enough catalogs. And coincidentally, there's information about how to go deeper in debt from a credit card company. <laughs> um, here's a news magazine that identifies all the trends of the week that we're missing. And I got a hobby magazine telling me about all the new equipment that I ought to have. And he says, why do I get the feeling that society is trying to make us discontent with everything we do and insecure about who we are? And then the final, it's Calvin, right? The kid, is that Calvin or Hobbes? Which one is the kid? Calvin, he comes in and he says, hey mom, I saw a bunch of products on TV that I didn't know existed, but I desperately need. <laughs> is that not true? This world is making promises it can't keep and we know it. It's like we know it, but we listen and we follow anyway. And I'm telling you, we pay a price. Everything comes with a cost. So it's not so radical to say that following Jesus comes with a cost. But for humans made in the image of God, placed in the midst of God's creation for the mission of God, denying ourselves and putting his will ahead of ours, it paradoxically leads to the kind of life we can't even imagine, the kind of life that we can't even dream to build on our own. A marketplace that offers a greater return than we could ever comprehend. And we get hints of it in this life. We get hints of it. There's a pastor theologian who has passed away. His name is John Stott. He says it like this. He says, if worship with God's people on earth is profoundly satisfying. Is worship with God's people on earth profoundly satisfying? then worship with everyone in heaven will be more thrilling still. 
if our hearts burn within us when the scriptures are opened opened up to us anew, then the revelation of all truth will be even more moving. If the glory of a sunset stirs you now, what will the beauty of the new heaven and earth be like? If even now you've had moments where you know what it is to rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, how much more when we're in a place where there's no more sorrow or tears? So yes, following Jesus comes with a cost. The difference is we can trust him to deliver because, this is so important, this is why our theology matters. He is the eternal one, fully God and fully man. The one who left behind his throne to be God with us. That means that for Jesus, hope, his memory of the future, it's not a false hope and it's not a false memory, it's an actual memory because he knows what it's like. It's his intimate experience with eternity. It's something he stepped out of so that he could be with us and one day bring us home. That's how he was able to carry that cross with hope. That's how he suffered and endured the pain with the joy set before him. Listen to Hebrews 12. This comes after Hebrews 11, which is that great list of the of the heroes of our faith who were all flawed people, but whose faith was evident in their lives. The next chapter says this, chapter 12, therefore, since we also have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let's rid ourselves of every obstacle and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let's run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking only at Jesus, the originator and perfecter of the faith, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus knew. He had a memory of the future, of what laid in store for him on the other side of the cross too. He knew that the only hope for this broken world and for God's broken image bearers was for sin and death to be dealt with once and for all. He knew this was his purpose, his mission, his vocation, to pay the price that we can't pay so that heaven and earth will be renewed, restored, and redeemed, so that his people can find that real life that we were created to live. And he knew. He knew that the identity and calling of his followers would be intimately tied to his. That his fate would be the same as ours. That's why he warned us that discipleship would be costly but worth the investment because those who suffer with him to the cross will one day celebrate with him the triumph of the resurrection. That is how death becomes the path to life. This is why he said, if you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. Like think about the imagery. Remember back to last fall, we talked about this. Grasping, clinging, hanging on to this life, what does it do to you ultimately? Turns you what? Inward upon yourself. But when you start to let go, denying ourselves, turning outward, unfurling, unraveling ourselves, what do we see? What do we find? Our witness to the gospel 
it is not only verbal. Our witness must also be visible. And our outward turn is a visible witness and it forms the shape of a cross. No, I'm telling you, if the world looks at us, which they often do, and if they look at us and they just see another human grasping and clinging, fighting for them, (laughs) fighting for me, that's no different than what they see in the rest of the world. That is not a visible witness. Then how much more ineffective when we go with our words and tell them this truth and this hope that we have but then with the way that we live, we look just like them. The Holy Spirit gives us the power Jesus has told us. Seek him and his kingdom first. He will do the unraveling and we will live lives that look more and more like that cross. Lives willing to sacrifice for the sake of others. Lives that will set aside the immediate gratification of our urges and our desires because we know the joy and peace that comes with his forever kingdom. This is what it means to deny ourselves, to take up our crosses and to follow him and continually follow him. Now this is good news. It means that bearing the cross is not a life-denying act. In the truest sense, it's the ultimate life-giving event. Because disciples live with the memory of a future promised, a future where God is on the throne and sickness, sadness, pain, and death are no more, never again. So to be his disciples, we must adopt his memory of the future, this hope, this joy that Jesus had, knowing that God is making all things new, that everything wrong will one day be made right. But this move is not easy. Delayed gratification is not natural to people who were turned inward upon themselves. So thankfully, Jesus shows us exactly how to do it. I'm gonna read this to you quickly and we'll end with this. I wanna show you how Luke frames the important moments in Jesus's life. We'll do this really quickly. Look at this from Luke 4. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was what? Heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. In Luke 9, the transfiguration, about eight days after Jesus said this, what I read today, he took Peter, John, and James with him, went up to a mountain too. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Luke 22, on reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. His baptism in chapter four, his transfiguration in chapter nine, the suffering in the garden before his arrest in chapter 22. And then our passage today, one day Jesus left the crowds to pray alone. And he asked them, who do people say I am? You can clearly see what they all have in common. Prayer. Jesus' prayer life as he was praying the revelation that God, that Jesus is God's Messiah, the explanation that the Messiah will suffer and die and be raised again, the commission to current and future followers to deny themselves, carry their cross, follow him continually. It is all said in the context of Jesus's personal commitment to prayer because he knew that prayer is what informs us. It's what strengthens us for the daily mission that God has called us to. It enlarges our hearts like in a good way, 
so that our capacity for compassion and empathy grows. It opens our ears so that we can hear the cries of those in need. It opens our eyes so that we can more clearly see and discern the difference between what's true and what's a lie. Prayer does this, our personal and our corporate prayers. I love to read Dallas Willard. This is paraphrasing something he said, but he says that prayer is not primarily saying words or thinking thoughts. It's a stance we take. Prayer is a posture. It's a way of living in his presence, living in the awareness of that presence and enjoying that presence. He goes on to say this, he says, just as we can be sure that the word of God will do its work, we can be equally sure that prayer will do its work. We just need to do it. Growing in confidence as we do it. It's like swimming, you learn by doing. And I love this, we may not know how we should pray, but if we do it, we'll learn. (laughs) You know why that rings so true to me? That sounds exactly like something Jesus would say. (laughs) Right? Something frustratingly true. It's the advice they've been giving us for the doctoral thesis. How do you start writing? You just start writing. (laughs) How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. How do we learn to pray? By praying. That is the key. That we cannot approach the cross, much less carry it if we're trying to do it on our own strength. We need his power and his presence with and in and through us if we're gonna do that work and if we're gonna do it as he did with joy set before him. So we need to adopt the prayer life of Jesus if we're gonna follow the way of Jesus. If we're to deny ourselves as Jesus did, if we're gonna carry our own cross as Jesus did, one day if we're gonna walk out of our own tombs as Jesus did. For those of you who were here on Ash Wednesday, Sabrina led us through a spiritual practice, practicing the presence of God, learning day by day more and more to be comfortable in the silence and the stillness, to clear our minds of all of our worries and our thoughts and focus on the presence of Jesus, trusting that he's there, available, ready for us. If you weren't here, the QR code will take you to a printout that'll guide you through it. We also have some copies in the Narthex that you can grab on your way out. You can go back and watch the service online as well. You can go through the service and you can follow that practice. I would really encourage, encourage you throughout the rest of the season of Lent. So often for Lent, everybody's giving something up, right? That's fine. What if we added something? What if we added a daily practice of prayer? Recognizing our need for his presence in our life trusting that if we turn to him and trust in him, he's gonna guide us through the hard stuff. He's gonna show us what the good stuff is and that one day we'll all be fulfilled. Everything will be made new and we'll be with him in glory forever. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, I am so thankful to be home with my family at home with my family here. Just gathered again to worship you with people that I know and love. I'm so grateful for the work that you have been doing in this church to make the gospel the center of this place. To put Jesus at the center of all things. To remind us 
of the only purpose and mission of the church is to love you, to love others, and to make disciples, period. Now, I pray that you would continue to do that work in us so that we can be effective in that mission, so that we can learn how to not only be verbal communicators of the gospel, but visual communicators as well. That by the power of your spirit, not by our good works, but by the power of your spirit, when people look at our lives as our lives are being changed, as we are being transformed more and more into your image, that when people look at us, they see something that looks more like the cross than the broken world around them. We pray that that would give them hope, that that would give them joy, and that they would join us on the journey. Give us the courage, the power, and the strength to live this gospel. We pray all this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said. Amen. Amen.